That was a band called Siggy, S-I-G-G-Y. And that was a song called Home off an album titled Cryptophagia, which means secret language. I picked them because I was racking my brain trying to figure out music that would be appropriate for a psychology of religion lecture. Lots of songs about psychology, even more songs about religion. Songs relating to both are, are scarce. Um, and then, and I asked somebody about this and they reminded me of Siggy, which for reasons that you'll understand later, they're, they're the perfect band for this, but I'll, I'll save a little bit of that for the end of the lecture. It'll be fun. Promise. Right now, lecture nine, let's get going with uh, a lecture that you probably wouldn't get in a lot of other courses, but that doesn't mean it's not important. We're going to talk today about the psychology, the history of the psychology of religion. Interest in the psychology of religion seems to, to rise and fall. Uh, when psychology goes through a period like it is now, that's more materialistic, more mechanistic, there's less interest in the psychology of religion from the field in general. Um, you know, for example, in the heyday of postmodernism in the 90s, psychology of religion was, was, was a popular subject. Geez, I mean, when I was in grad school, it was just, it was the soup du jour at Fuller. Um, everybody was doing the psych of religion. Um, but the current emphasis in psychology on neuroscience and on medical models, that kind of thing, it seems to have resulted in some decline in, in popularity. Um, I submit to you that psychology religion is incredibly important now, um, given, and yeah, I, I'll try not to, to go on one of my tangents here, but given um, the intense emotion that, that is associated with, you know, often associated with differences in religious belief, I think it's time to, to revisit um, maybe some, some psych of religion um, for a new era. So before the rise of empirical psychology and behaviorism, as we've talked about, psychology was really more in the province of, of philosophy and even theology. In the late 19th or early 20th centuries, uh, you know, a, a psychology professor was more likely to be a member of a clergy or in, from the philosophy uh, department, you would, you'd learn about mental philosophy and probably even some, some stuff that would seem kind of hokey nowadays, like spiritualism. And I don't mean religion. It's the spiritualism was something that we, we would think of as like new age spirituality now. So psychology, as it attempts to establish itself as a science, starts to really increasingly issue any connection with religion and the scientific study of it. And, but in the, the United States, and we'll, this is another area where um, the United States is a bit of exception, an exception in the way that it treats psychology. Um, you have early psychologists recognizing the importance of religion in everyday life and felt that the scientific study of religion was imperative. So let's start with the grandfathers. I'm making nobody, I'm, I made these names up. I'm calling them the grandfathers uh, of religion. That is not any kind of, of, of psychology of religion. Excuse me. That, those aren't official titles. William James and G. Stanley Hall. So 
James and all's early work focused on religious conversion. Um, I, my honors thesis as an undergraduate was on religious conversion, and I cited, uh, I cited, I cited James and Hall's work on a regular basis. So they, they took a kind of um, an elementist, structuralist almost approach, which is unusual for, for William James. But, but he's saying, that, but James talks about this collection of experiences. I think I mentioned this in another lecture. He calls it an, a, a perceptive mass that wants enough attitudes, feelings, beliefs, thoughts, uh, related to religion are kind of in this aperceptive mass eventually will come through to consciousness and the person will have some kind of conversion uh, experience. In the variety of religious experience, William James says that religion is difficult to define and he calls it the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude. It's an interesting take on it, the solitude part, in relation to whatever they may consider divine. He eschews collective religion as an institution, um, and and it's you know it's a he calls it a material phenomenon. It's very in other words for him, it's a very human thing. It's not necessarily a spiritual thing. Very much fits with William James's view uh, of spirituality. I want to read a couple passages from James' seminal work in the psychology of religion, the varieties of religious experience. If you're ever in a used bookshop and you're hunting around for a cool early edition um, to, to add to your library, the, I would say the varieties of religious experience is essential. Where one asks to characterize the life of religion in the broadest and most general terms possible, one might say that it consists of the belief that there is an unseen order, and our supreme good lies in harmonious, harmoniously adjusting ourselves thereto. This is something, this is a, a more personal passage um, from variety of, of religious experience. He describes the spiritual experience he had here. He said, the perfect stillness of the night was thrilled by a more solemn silence. The darkness held a presence that was all the more felt because it was not seen. I could not any more have doubted that he, all caps, was there than, than I was. Indeed, I felt myself to be, if possible, the less real of the two. So, it, the Varieties of Religious Experience is a, a great book to, to read. Um, there's stuff in it that certainly still rings true and is very useful now. And the, you know, but if you're, you're interested in psychology of religion, I, I think it's a, a, a necessary read. In 1917, G. Stanley Hall published an essay titled, Jesus the Christ in the Light of Psychology. It was his least popular essay, uh, unfortunately, but what it is, it's, it's an historical treatment of Jesus, but not just that, it's a, it's a psychological treatment of Jesus. It's a sort of a, a psychological profile, really a lot of more musings um, about, you know, the, during this time, there was a, this big movement to find the historical Jesus. You saw this in um, critical theology, that kind of thing. Um, and so what G. Stanley Hall is doing is saying, well, okay, now we're going to find the psychological Jesus. So let me, let me read you um, it's just the, the opening paragraph. Do we, shall we ever, do we really want and ought we to know how Jesus looked? What manner of man was he physically? 
What were his stature, bodily proportions, strength, complexion, temperament, health, diathesis generally? Was he beautiful or ugly? Was his presence insignificant, like that of Paul, or impressive and magisterial? Was he choleric, sanguine, or nervous? What of his voice and gesticulation? What were the attributes of his person, personality generally? Or, in scholastic terms, what did Jesusicity <laughs> consist of? That is, the, the, cons- in what did Jesusicity consist? That is the only time you're ever going to hear that word. Jesusicity. Some of these traits he must have had to the exclusion of their opposites, like all of us. Else the incarnation was incomplete or indeed unreal. Or was he made up bodily, like a composite photograph, of every human trait with a maximum of generic and a minimum of specific qualities? Was he an embodied generalized type, as in the evolutionary series? We have the patrophilius, which combines the common and lacks the special qualities of all the philidia. Or what they you had to include some Latin when you're writing during this time. You just it was like obligatory. Or was he like Aristotle's ideal of the temperate man, midway between all extremes, striking an exact average of all human qualities with every one of them present, but none in excess? How the Christian world has longed to know how seers, theologians, anchorites, I don't know what that word is, anchorites, have striven for a vision of their Lord. How art has labored to limn his features and poetry and romance, as we shall see, to presentify him in his many characters and roles all the way from manger to the ascension. That's just the first paragraph. So the essay is well worth reading. I'll, I'll upload it. Um, yeah. And if I think I've already uploaded it. I'll upload it again, just in case. But it's well worth reading. And it, you know, it shows that in this heavily modernistic era, um, there were still people actively, not just doing psychology of religion, but but almost, this is, this is tiptoeing up to integration, right? Because you've got these, these huge figures in the history of American psychology um, her bring, being unabashedly theistic at the minimum, and with Hall, he's being unabashedly Christian. So if William James and G. Stanley Hall are the grandfathers of the psychology of religion, then the fathers, again, totally my call here. This is nothing official. This is what I'm saying. I think I'm right, um, but this is what I'm saying. The fathers of the psychology of, psychology of religion were... Um, Ed Starbuck, James Luba, and Gordon Allport, my my personal fan favorite there. Um, Luba and Starbuck were students of Hall and James at Harvard, and they were instrumental in beginning the first journals related to psychology of religion, most of which don't exist anymore. Um, we're going to call Starbuck and Allport fathers instead of grandfathers because Starbuck coined the phrase psychology of religion and wrote a textbook titled Psychology of Religion in 1899. So I'm going to read the first two paragraphs from from Starbucks, the textbook, the first textbook on the psychology of religion. Science has conquered one field after another until now it is entering the most complex, the most inaccessible, and of all, the most sacred domain, that of religion. The psychology of religion has for its work to carry the well-established methods of science into consciousness and to ascertain the laws which determine its growth and character. 
It will be a source of delight to many persons, and of regret to others, that the attempt is at last made to study the facts of religion by scientific methods. Those who believe that law reigns, not only in the physical world, but in the mental and spiritual, in other words, that we live in a lawful universe, and who believe furthermore that we are helped in becoming lawful creatures by comprehending the order that reigns, will hail this new development with gladness. Those, on the other hand, who hold conceptions which separate sharply the spiritual realm from the mundane, who acknowledge law and the consequent validity of science in the one, but set the other under the control of voluntary and arbitrary decrees, will look on a scientific study of religion with distrust and suspicion. In fact, during the years that these studies in the psychology of religion have been in progress, the warning has often been given in good faith that we are entering upon a hopeless quest. The ways of God, it is said, are beyond human comprehension. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. It is the oft-repeated quotation. Now, it is not the purpose of this chapter to answer objections to the scientific study of religion or to justify it, a thing which may safely be left to time, but to help the patient student of the pages which follow reap what good they may contain by falling in line with their point of view. Um, I love that for, for many, many reasons um, that I could talk about at length, but it's just it's one of the things that, that I miss um, in a, in a more in more contemporary text on the psychology of religion. Um, you don't get that the sort of passion, you don't get the excitement, you don't get the acknowledgement that of, of the mystery as much that indeed we're studying something that has otherworldly spiritual metaphysical significance. You just don't hear that as much. You'll hear it in integration text, but just not psychic religion text really anymore. Now we get to Gordon Allport. I guess you would say, as my kids would say, I stand Gordon Allport. I actually think that's probably not what I mean. But anyway, <laughs> Gordon Allport. Um, during behaviorism's heyday, psychology religion received less attention for the reasons I talked about at the beginning. Gordon Allport almost single-handedly resurrects interest in the subject in the 50s and this is and this is again with the zeitgeist a little bit because now this is when we have moral psychology humanistic psychology um allport is a contemporary of carl rogers and um i i think maslow's um he famously said more people remember their prayers than their dreams and prayers seem to have more tangible impact on people's lives why should psychology be more interested in dreams than prayer? Boom. He became a prolific writer in the area, and, and again, a lot of people consider him um, the, the father of the psychology of religion. Um, he developed a, a construct and an assessment to go along with it that if you've spent much time studying the psychology of religion doing research, you've come across this intrinsic and extrinsic religiousness this was really that's my memory and I, st I took a psych of religion class as an undergrad and i had a a, a great experience um, and a great professor a guy named ted doherty um, at wake forest university um, and and one of the first things i learned about was intrinsic and extrinsic religiousness um, 
it's not take would take a little long for me to to describe it here. Most of you are familiar with the concept. Um, intrinsic faith. I'm, I'm way oversimplifying this. Um, yeah, Richard Gorsuch would would get mad at me. Um, but it, intrinsic faith is internally motivated. Extrinsic faith is more externally motivated. You you do it more for for gain, while in, intrinsic faith tends to be more personally held and felt. So just huge in the, the study of psychology of religion. I'm, I'm <laughs> as an undergraduate, um, and then as a professor, I've, I've collected data using intrinsic, extrinsic religiousness scales. So huge contribution. So I am going to read um, a bit of an article written by Newton Maloney, um, and I'll talk about Dr. Maloney in just a few minutes. Uh, this is from an article he wrote <clears throat> um, about Allport, and so I'm going to read it. He's going to kind of set it up, and then there'll, there'll be a passage. Um, there'll be a passage from from Allport's Psychology of Religion. Allport insisted adult motives cannot be reduced or explained in terms of childhood needs. While all behavior is dynamic, it becomes free from its early sources in growth and maturation. You can kind of see the the connection with humanistic here. Uh, instead of being a habit that is carried over from childish dependency, the mature religion's sentiment is motivated by adult conscious values. He admits early conscience is a function of the fear of punishment. Further, childhood views of God do resemble a projected father image. Yet, mature conscience is guilty not for the things, done, things it has done against parental wishes, but for the things it ought to do for the sake of values it holds dear. Mature faith is seen as a search for meaning beyond all self-seeking. Thus, he suggests an attribute of mature religion is the derivative yet dynamic nature of the mature sentiment. As Allport states, immature religion, whether in an adult or child, is largely concerned with magical thinking, self-justification, and creature comfort. Thus, it betrays its sustaining motive still to be drives and desires of the body. By contrast, mature religion is less of a servant and more of a master in the economy of life. No longer goaded and steered exclusively by impulse, fears, and wishes, it tends, to ra it tends rather to control and direct these motives toward a goal that is no longer determined by mere self-interest. So now we move from the history of psychology to the history of integration, and they are two different things, as, as you well know. People can, pretty, anybody can study the psychology of religion. You don't have to be from a particular faith brown, background to do that. Doing integration, there's the assumption that you are bringing a faith perspective, your faith per experience into the psychology. You're not just studying the psych, you're just not studying faith with psychology. That's psychology of religion. Integration is I'm combining faith and psychology. So it assumes that you're bringing a particular faith perspective. Fritz Kunkel was a major contributor to Christian education and counseling in the 40s, and he was the first to use the word integration to refer to combining Christian faith and psychology. Journal of Pastoral Psychology later described Gordon Alport as an outstanding leader in the movement of integration and of integration of psychology and religion. And so Alport is one of the founders of, of psychology of religion, but he was also a little bit active in integration because right? He, he was a Christian. Several organizations formed dedicated to Christian psychologies in the 1940s through the 1960s, and a few survive. 
such as the Christian Association for Psychological Studies. You've heard of this. It's also known as CAPS, and they they have a meeting every spring, and Fuller's always well represented at those meetings. There's the National Academy of Religion and Mental Health, and of course, Division 36 of the APA. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Division 36, the Psychology of Religion Division. And you're gonna you're gonna notice a familiar pattern here. So it begins outside the American Psychological Association in 1946 as the American Catholic Psychological Association formed largely out of Catholic opposition to the, the emphasis on behaviorism and materialism and, and psychology. This actually historically makes a lot of sense that it would come from um, that, that this would come from Catholicism because you have to remember as, as we've talked about, um, psychology really comes from a combination of science and, and philosophy and a lot of the philosophy teachers in the area of psychology were, were Catholic priests. They were, they were clergy. And so it makes a lot of sense that there would be, they would form this, this association. In 1970, the group changed its name to Psychologists Interested in Religion, P-I-R-I. I wonder how they said that. Did they say P-R-I-R-I or did they say Piri? Who knows? They did this to give the group a more ecumenical appeal. The goal was to become a division of APA, so P-I-R-I structured itself as such. And everybody was required to be a member of the APA. Then finally, in 1976, the P-I-R-I becomes um, the Div Division 36 of the APA. It begins as more a more integrative organization, um, but then it began moving more toward the scientific study of all faiths and its membership, though it's still predominantly Christian, increasingly included members of different religions. In 1993, the year that I matriculated at Fuller, although I don't, I don't know if there's a connection here. Somebody should look into it. In 1993, the group changed its name to the Psychology of Religion Division. This reflects increasing scientific focus and it's partially a reaction to people who think that division 36 is like this christian fundamentalist wing of the apa um, 1993 the year the group changed its name also happens to be the year that i matriculated to fuller is there a connection i don't know but i'm sure somebody's going to look into that Let's talk about Fuller, actually, because talking about integration, talking about psychology of religion, and not talking about Fuller is actually hard to do because it's hard to overestimate Fuller's role in the history of the psych of religion. Um, Fuller was the first APA-accredited Christian psychology program, and our first PhD students enrolled in 1965. If you look hard enough, on the first floor, you can actually find a picture of that first class uh, as they graduated. Our PsyD program began in 1988 and our program remains the only program, the only APA accredited program housed at a seminary. And we have had several faculty members be president of Division 36. Newton Maloney, Hendrika Vandykamp, Richard Gorsuch, and Sung Young Tan. Um, I believe Dr. Vandekamp and, of course, Dr. Tan uh, are still alive. 
And Division 36 award recipients also include such fuller faculty members as Richard Gorsuch, Peter Benson, Newton Maloney, and Hendrika Vandekamp again. Fuller's, our program was actually the first to have a chair of integration. Um, the first chair was, was Newton Maloney, um, and the second was Lewis Meads, and he was actually a theologian um, and not a, a psychologist. So all of these folks, Gorsuch, Maloney, and Vandekamp, are regarded as modern seminal thinkers and researchers in the psychology of religion. Um, Richard Gorsuch has certainly published more scientific studies on the psychology of religion than anyone else in the field. I, if you, if you look at a publication on the psychology of religion, there's probably a sixty to seventy percent chance that Gorsuch is going to be cited multiple times uh, in in the re- reference section. I was fortunate enough to really be among the the last generation. Um, I was fortunate enough to be really in the last generation of students that received training from all of these folks that I'm mentioning. They were all there when I became a student, and I'm not going to lie, it was a little intimidating. And and the culture is different. Now, don't worry, this isn't going to be one of those I used to walk uphill to, you know, to school both ways in the snow stories. It's not like that. It's just that, you know, when, <laughs> when you have people who are basically giants in the APA, giants in the psychology of religion, people who really helped establish Fuller um, in, and its relevance in, in integration in school psychology, yeah, it can, it can be a little intimidating. They were great folks. So, Let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, all of the, the first chair of, of integration was Newt Maloney. I was not stu- I was not a student when he was the chair of integration, um, but I had Newt in class, and Newt was this journeyman um, psychologist. Newt Newt just knew everything about psychology. I mean, I'm using some hyperbole, but I mean, you know, his thing was his emphasis was psychology of religion. Um, but he knew so much about theology and assessment. I remember once I was on the first floor. And, and, you know, and Newt is in his 70s at this point, and somebody walks in with a question um, about an assessment measure, um, and they're talking to another student. Newt just walks by, and he just goes, oh, let me see. You do this, 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 this. And our, our mouths were just all open. It's like, how do you know so much about everything? Um, the chair of integration when, when I matriculated to Fuller was Lewis Meads, and he was a theologian. And... Lou, <laughs> Lou was a prophet. Uh, that's 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 the style that he had. Um, I remember. Um, well, my first class that I had with him was intro to integration. I my intro to integration class was taught, co-taught by Newton Maloney, and and Lewis Meads. I had no clue how lucky I was at the time. I soon figured it out because listening to these men talk. I mean, it was just so much experience and knowledge and so much passion about integration. That's the thing, too, this this love for Christ and love for the work. Um, and it was just so much fun listening to them. But I had a class with, with Lou, um, my my second quarter ever at Fuller. It was um, it was just titled called Christian Psychology. That's all, just Christian Psychology. Um, so I, we go in on the first day, and then Lou walks in couple minutes late he sits down the stool right in front of us just imagine him you know imagine this this white-haired gentleman sitting down like Rodan's the thinker and he's quiet and we're all just sitting there 
Um, and he's quiet for a little bit, and then he just he lifts his head up and he says, I have been a Christian for 62 years. And in all that time, I cannot answer one question. Where the hell is God when you need him? And I was just like, as a student, I'm like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I'm paying attention. I have no clue what this class is going to be about after this, but I'm you. You have my attention, sir. And it, and it was just a wonderful experience. Um, Lou died actually, I think about ten years ago. Um, he died hanging Christmas lights. Um, in well into to his eighties, he he slipped and and got a head injury. It's really sad. Um, Dr. Gorsuch, Richard Gorsuch died in 2018. As I said, just in terms of the psychology of religion, especially social psychology, it's just, it's hard to, to find someone who's done more research and been more influential. Um, <laughs> I had Dr. Gorsuch for advanced research methods and <clears throat> Dr. Gorsuch and Dr. Vandekamp, I can say I can say this about them, and um, <laughs> I, I think I know at least Dr. Vandekamp would not be offended by this. They were both very, very easy to listen to, and very hard to understand and follow <laughs> at the same time. I loved listening to both of them talk because what they would do, their style was just to drop all of these little, little facts and everything here and there. But you weren't always sure why or where they were going. But it was just so much fun uh, to listen to them. And of course, Dr. Chan, we, he retired uh, this year, um, but he's an emeritus faculty and he's still around working just in terms of being influential in the field of integration. Again, huge, especially cognitive behavioral therapy and more popular Christian psychology writing books that are, are accessible to everyone and just a tremendous amount of work that he's done in lay counseling. And I, I'm so, I still, I still call all of my colleagues. I, I call them by their first name. I have a hard time doing that with Sun Young Tan. So I usually still call him Dr. Tan. And he never argues with me, which I don't, yeah, he deserves that. So I could um, hang on here telling stories forever. Um, none of this will be on the test. But it, it's just interesting to look at how the schools evolved. And, and I think it's easy for all of us to forget, just in the day in, day out of, of grind of things, that we're all, we're all learning and working together someplace that has a really, really important historical role in the history of the psychology of religion and the history of integration. This is another song by Siggy called Mirage. The name of the band is a reference to Sigmund Freud and David Bowie. And the members of the band are Deborah Buckwalter, Galen Buckwalter, Ryan Howes, and Paul Netherton. All Fuller SOPMFT alums. Thank you, as always, for your kind attention. If I had never seen